right, well, hello. It has been a year. It has been quite a year, and now, and now there is a piece of plexiglass between me and you, and everyone's wearing masks, and it's still weird, and yet God's word, is, God's word remains. And I am excited to share this passage with you. It's an interesting one because it's a lot of very famous passages, actually, all kind of smashed together, and they're usually passages that I've, always, I've usually heard out of context. So it's like I'll hear them quoted, but I don't usually hear them taught all together. Like I, some of these, I didn't even realize they were part of the Sermon on the Mount. And now I know because I had to teach it. And when you're teaching something, it's good to actually like study it and learn it so that, you know, just so that, you know, people don't figure out that you don't know what you're talking about. This way I can cleverly disguise the fact that I don't know what I'm talking about. So praise God that he knows what he was talking about, and Jesus knows what he's talking about. Because while these passages may seem like they're just sort of some odds and ends, or maybe it's like, oh, you know, Jesus had these thoughts. Maybe he was just going to, like, you know, just couldn't think of a spot to put them, so he just shoved them all together at the end. It's like, no, I, I don't agree with that view. I believe Jesus knew very well what he was doing when he said these things here in this particular place and when he said them together. And so we're going to teach them together. So, starting off, very famous verse, Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. This is one I hear quoted a lot. In fact, I hear this one quoted a lot these days, and it's not actually being quoted from the Bible. People, lo- people like to remind other people not to, not to judge one another. We don't like it. It doesn't feel good. So, is that what Jesus is saying here? And also, because the ESV normally does a pretty good job, I think, of doing things in plain English, but this is kind of a... This is one of those moments where nobody really talks like this. I also looked up the, uh, the NIV version of this, which is, do not judge or you too will be judged. So is Jesus saying, don't judge, don't never condemn people? Is he saying that no condemnation ever, that's just a bad idea? I, I, I don't think so. And I and think, because thankfully, Jesus doesn't just say this one verse that's very broad and could be taken a lot of ways. He says, he says some other things about this. So if you go on to verse 2, he says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So I don't think this is a blanket prohibition against judgment. I think this is a warning. This is a warning that if you're going to go judge people, if you're going to go judge people specifically as it pertains to sin, you need to watch out because the standard that you're holding those, those other people to is the one that's going to be used against you. And Jesus goes on, he has a, a metaphor for us, and it's a very painful-sounding metaphor. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So this is a warning against rash, hasty judgments, but it's also a warning against judging without considering your own state. And I think there's a couple of reasons why it's a bad idea to start judging other people's sin without looking at your own first. Reason number one is our sin. The sin of, like, well, actually, I'll just step up for a sec. All of us have sinned. You can't get away from that. That's, you know, Romans 3, 21 through 26. Like, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can't escape that fact that all have sinned. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is kind of, is primarily 
I don't know if it's probably, I can say primarily, but one of the big things that he's doing here is he's refuting kind of the, the righteousness of the group of religious leaders known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you've kind of heard us sort of you know, go through some of the ways that the Pharisees carried out their righteousness, and it was all very external. It was all very much for looks. And just because there may not be Pharisees around anymore doesn't mean we, pro we don't know people like that in real life, people who have that holier-than-thou attitude where it's like, look at me, I do all the rules right, you don't, therefore I'm good, you're bad. That's a very, that's a very, uh, very tiny summary, but that's the righteousness that Jesus is refuting here. So for the Pharisees, you know, it's like they were very righteous, and they were very good at following all the rules, and they were also very quick to point to other people and be like, that guy's a sinner. And I deliberately pointed, like, kind of above, so I wouldn't accidentally point at someone in the audience. Um, they were really, really good at that, but they, were re but they also kind of considered themselves to be kind of above that. It's like, no, 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 we're good. We're fine. I don't know, I'm fine. I'm, I'm very righteous. Did you see how much money I gave to the poor last week? Very righteous. That guy's a sinner, though. Uh, so they were, so that's a bad idea because if you've got that log in your eye, if you have sin in your life, you're not necessarily in a great spot to help other people deal with the sin in their life. So reason number one, it's a bad idea to judge other people harshly and rashly on their sin is because you're also a sinner and you're going to be held to the same standard. Reason number two is... If you're blinded by a log in your eye, you're not in a good spot to see the speck, right? If somebody's coming at me with like their eye, something like a piece of wood sticking out of their eye saying like, here, let me, let me, let me get into your eye right there. It's like, just like, no, no, I'd rather have, it's like, I'd rather my, my uh, eye doctor have both eyes and not something like sticking out of it so that when they get up close, it's not like poking me in the face. I may be running too far with this metaphor. The metaphor here is telling us that You've got to treat your own sin as being the log, right? The other guy is the speck, yours is the log. And once you take care of that, then you're in a much better position to help somebody else. Like, so Jesus doesn't say, never judge, never ignore the speck. He doesn't say that. He says, get that log out, and then you can help take care of the speck. Because once that log is clear, once that influence of sin in your life is gone, not only are you better able to see what's going on, you're also going to have a better understanding of mercy. Once you've, once you've recognized, oh, I am every bit as much in need of God's grace as the next person, you're going to be in a much better place to help, show, you know, to help, that, help other people walk, like work, work through what's going on in their own lives. Now, of course, Jesus here says that, you know, it says, okay, so don't, don't judge hastily, don't judge rashly. But he also, you know, but as we're as we're pointing out that like he's he's saying, you know, not to never judge, there's a very good reason why it's okay, it's occasionally or even often good to pass some kind of judgment on sin, right? Because the temptation might be to just take a step back and be like, okay, well, I'm just never gonna judge then. I'm just gonna hold off and I'm not gonna question anybody else's anybody else or anybody else's actions or decisions or behaviors, and I'm just not gonna do that. It's like, besides, that's uncomfortable. Confrontation sucks. So then we get to verse 6, which says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So clearly, we need to still be able to make some kind of judgment as to what, is a, you know, what constitutes a, a dog or a pig, and what constitutes something that is holy or a pearl. Now, a little bit of backstory here. For the people of Israel... 
in ancient times, dogs and pigs were considered unclean animals. And I don't just mean unclean like they rolled around in mud or sometimes their own feces. I mean unclean like spiritually. So it's not like, you know, you touch one of these animals, your hand is dirty. It's no, you touch one of these animals, your soul's dirty now. You got to get out of camp for a while and, you know, go, go take a bath and hope that that co- cleanses you. You know, it's like, it, it's, once again, gross oversimplification. We could talk for hours about, you know, ancient Israelite, like, purification rituals and stuff like that. We're not going to. Because the point is that there is a need to be able to distinguish between the clean and the unclean. The, what God was trying to teach the people of Israel by saying some animals are clean, some animals are unclean, is he was showing them that righteousness involves needing to be, needing to be able to make that kind of a distinction in the first place. So while we don't have those same rules today, we don't, fall, we don't, you know, we don't go out of our way to avoid pigs or pork, or you know, we, we have dogs, dogs are pets now, which is great. Fun fact, back then, dogs, not fluffy friends. These were wild street dogs. You know, you come around a corner in ancient Palestine, you see a dog, you're more likely to, you know, you're less likely to think, wow, that's a fluffy friend right there, and more likely to think, I hope I can remember which vein is my jugular. We need to be able to, you need to be able to make that judgment and go, that's a dog, I don't think I should be giving it holy stuff. Now, as I was studying for this, there, there are a few ideas about, like, what, about, like, what constitutes, whole, like, what's something that's holy. Um, one commentary I read was, suggest, was saying that it's, it's the sacraments, a.k.a. things like the, the baptism and communion, which are very specifically for believers, for people who have dedicated their lives to Jesus and are walking in that way. And in fact, it's, it's dangerous to take the communion in, in, from a bad heart state. So, you know, that's a case where it's like, yeah, I mean, we would need to be able to make that, you need to be able to make that distinction, you need to be able to make that judgment. Uh, another example from the commentaries I read was that it's uh, talking about when preaching the gospel, like knowing when to, con- like knowing when to move on, basically, because uh, at one point later in Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples on sort of a, their first little mini mission trip just in Israel to go spread the gospel. But one of the things he says is when they go to a town, if that town rejects them, they shake the dust off their sandals at them as kind of a, basically a warning saying, like, you're in trouble. And then they could, but then they were to move on. So the idea there being like, okay, if someone is wholeheartedly, like they've heard the gospel, they've understood the gospel, they're rejecting the gospel, there's a time and a place to discern and say, it's time to move on. The Apostle Paul did the same thing, and whenever he went to a new town, he would go to the Jewish synagogue first, and eventually, after preaching there for a while, they'd get really mad at him, and then he would move on and preach to the Gentiles. So I think the, the idea is, I don't think it's either just one of those two things. I think it's more, I think it's a lot of that. I think it's really just that we need to be able to make that judgment. When Jesus is saying, judge not, he's not saying, never judge. He's saying, don't do it hastily. Don't don't be don't be quick about it. Check out, you know, examine yourself first, because really failing to recognize the pigs and the dogs can lead to great harm. The place where we see that word, so in you know, to the Jews as Jesus was speaking, they would have known this as Gentiles, those guys who are not us, and they eat pigs and they're really gross, and we can't even go into their houses; they're so gross. But later in the New Testament, you start to see this word used to describe false teachers in the church. So people who either were Jews or Gentiles, could be either, but were in the church and were teaching false doctrine. If you can't look at that and say, hey, that's wrong, then you're in trouble because that's when the pig and the dog is now turning and trampling you. So 
at that point, there is, there is a real risk of harm to the church if, Jesus, if God's people, Jesus' body, are not able to make any kind of judgments whatsoever. Now, if all of that sounds really difficult to you, that's because it is. It's like making decisions is hard, right? That, that's something I have discovered as an adult who now has like a house and a mortgage and a, and a job and all that kind of stuff. Is like making decisions is hard. You know, it's like, I mean, it could be something as simple as like, oh, the roof is leaking. Who do I hire? It's like, well, there's a million different people with a million different, you know, Google reviews are all over the place or, you know. Anytime making decisions are hard, how much more so when it comes to passing, to passing judgment on people? Because if we're doing that with mercy, we're, then, we're, then, you know, it's like we want to give people a chance. We want to treat them the way that we'd want to be treated. A little, you know, getting, maybe getting ahead of myself there. But the thing is, we need help. The kind of righteousness that Jesus is calling his followers to live out and to exercise in the Sermon on the Mount is an internal to external righteousness. It starts in the heart and affects our actions. The Pharisees' way is actually pretty easy because you just need to do the rule. You just need to follow the rules well enough, right? Like I, so I, I'm a pastor's kid. My dad is a pastor. He's a pastor at this church. He's not, not Greg, but uh, he's, actually, he's actually not here today. So don't, you know, as you're looking around the room, like, which pastor is he talking about? Not Matt. I think we're actually the same age. So that'd be really weird. Um, but something I've learned about is that the pastor's kids kind of have this reputation for, like, they can either be, like, super, super they can be either super righteous or they can be super unrighteous but really good at faking it. Right? So the... the the fake righteousness is a lot easier because you just need to fool people. You don't need to fool, it's like, you can't, it's like you're not really thinking about, you know, it's like you don't really have to change your heart, basically. You just need to do enough so that everyone looks at you and says that person is really righteous. It's easy. Just give a lot of, you know, give a lot of money to the poor, uh, fast a lot, you know, all that. It's easy. But what Jesus is calling us to is he's saying like, hey, it's not enough just to not murder people. You can't, don't, don't be angry. Don't even be, don't even hate your brother. You know, it's like, not only, it's not enough just to, you know, not commit adultery. Like, you can't even look at someone that way. It's, n he, Jesus is calling us to go above and beyond the kind of fake surface-level righteousness that the Pharisees reveled in. And that's hard. That's a harder road to walk. And it requires a lot of discernment to be able to make, you know, for even just looking at the pa passages we just read, judging requires discernment. It requires help. So when I usually hear verses 7 through 11 taught, it's, always, it's usually in the context of prayer, and it usually kind of winds up sounding sort of like, oh, hey, if you need something from God, just be, just be persistent and, you know, be patient. I think this goes beyond just, like, temporal things, though. I think this goes beyond just, hey, God, I need a thing right now. I believe that this is referring to the kind of life we are to lead. If we are going to be righteous people in the way that Jesus wants us to be righteous, we need to be constantly knocking at God's door. So verse 7 says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So there's that, those three verbs there, ask, seek, and knock. And these are, you know, these, these give us this sense of persistence, of purpose, 
right? It's like you are asking. You know you need something. You're asking for it. You know you, know you got to find it, so you are seeking for it. You're at God's door knocking, saying, like, hey, I, I need something good here. And this passage also comes with a, with a lovely metaphor. And this one's actually a lovely metaphor, not a weird, like, log-in-the-eye metaphor. Uh, in verse 9, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, as an aside, evil here being just meaning sinful, all have sinned. I'm not saying, he's not necessarily saying, like, you're a supervillain or something. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That is a wonderful, that is a wonderful heartwarming passage, and it's always used, and I always hear it used in the context of, like, hey, if you ask God for what he wants, for something you would need, he'll definitely give it to you. But in case, in case you haven't noticed God's not a genie, you don't just say, I wish for this, and then he's got to do it. He's a good father. And if, we pay, and if we're willing to accept this metaphor of God as an ideal, perfect father, which, acknowledging, we don't, not all of us have gotten to experience that, and even the best fathers are not perfect, but if we acknowledge God as a perfect father who is willing and able to give to his children the good things they need, we also need to be willing to acknowledge that a good father knows when not to give his kids stuff or when to say no. So, quick poll of the room. Fathers of Harvest, let's say for 24 hours you gave your kids everything they asked for. Every single thing. How would your child be at the end of, the 24 hour per- of that 24-hour period? Would they be happy? Would they be alive? I hope they'd be alive. Here's the thing. I haven't been a father. I have not had that privilege yet. I have been a son. And I can definitely think of things that when I was a kid that I begged my parents for and they didn't give me. And I can look back and be like, thank you. Thank you for not getting, yeah, thank you for not adopting a ferret for me, because apparently those things are really hard to take care of. Um, That said, though, God is a good father, and he, you know, it's like, what, you know, fathers of harvest. Okay, another question. If your kid is hungry and they come to you and say, can I please have food, are you going to give them a rock and say, chew on this? I know some of you would, and then you'd give them, but then you'd give them the bread afterwards, right? You'd do it as a joke, but then you'd still give them food because you don't want your kid to starve. You know what your kid, you know what your child needs. I had the privilege of having a good father. He did not let me starve, as is evidenced by the fact that I'm still here. So what does this mean? As we go through our lives, as we seek to live and seek God's kingdom, as he talked about, as Jesus talked about in chapter six, you know, seek first the kingdom of God. Not worry, you know, don't worry about the temporal things of this world. Seek his kingdom first. If we are seeking God's kingdom, he's going to give us what we need. And in fact, God, we know that God will even continue to work on our hearts to change our desires, right? Like prayer is not a matter of trying to get God to come around to our way of doing things and our way of seeing the world. Prayer is us going to God because we realize that we have a deep spiritual need. I mean, early, you know, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mountain, the, you know, the part we call the Beatitudes, Jesus says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I believe that's what Jesus is talking about here. It's like we should be hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and we know there's only one place we get that. The Pharisees would have said, oh, I got that. I got that right here. I'm so good. Look at me. Did you see how much money I gave to the poor last week? You did see that, right? I sounded a trumpet and everything so everyone could see how good I am. The Pharisees would have thought that, it's like, okay, I'm good. As Jesus followers, we recognize by, we start off 
inheriting, you know, inheriting the sin gene from all the way back as far as Adam and Eve, right? So thank you, Adam and Eve. We recognize that we need Jesus. We need God. We need that. We need that, and that's constant, persistent prayer. We, that's how we ought to live our lives. So finally, we get to the big one. This is the verse. Verse 12 is known as the golden rule, or perhaps the silver statute, or maybe the platinum proverb, or, you know, maybe the iridium edict for all we know. I'm just making these up now. I'm just making these up. It's never actually called the golden rule in the Bible. That's something, that's a name we gave it after the fact. And say we as in the church, like Christians afterwards. So why do we call this rule golden? Is it because it is yellow and shiny? Perhaps it conducts electricity really well. No, we call it the golden rule because we see it as being incredibly valuable. It's basically, well, yeah, I haven't actually read it yet. Let me read it out. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. In this very sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already said that he didn't come to over, you know, to kind of overthrow or get rid of the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. So the Pharisees followed the rules for the rules' sake. But the rules that God gave his people weren't just, you know, weren't just supposed to be check, you know, check marks on a list, like, okay, I kept all the rules. You know, when, when he's saying, don't steal, don't steal your neighbor's ox, you know, don't, you know, covet your neighbor's stuff, don't murder your neighbor, don't do all of that. It's, you know, if you think about it, at the core of all those is this idea of treating your neighbor well. And this, so this, this captures that idea, right? This golden rule. It's like if you, are treating, you know, if you are treating others the way you wish they would treat you, how, you know, it's like you're living very differently from, the, from, say, the Pharisees or from someone who's just doing an external, the external righteousness. And I'd like to bring this back around to the idea of mercy, right? It's like as we, as we are seeking God every day, as we are asking, seeking, knocking, and well aware of our own spiritual needs, we're going to be so much more aware of how to treat others well. And for this, we still need discernment, because at the end of the day, we are still sinful people. And, you know, it's like the things that we might see as like, oh, well, this is what I'd want someone to do for me, is maybe not what they want in that moment, Right? Our desires are not perfect the way God's are. So this isn't something where it's like, okay, every time I interact with another human being, I'm going to ask myself, what would I wish that they would do for me in this situation? This is rather, I think, it's more about understanding that we should be humble, we should be merciful in how we deal with other people. So all of this, I think, comes back to this idea of discernment, of needing to be able to look around and make these, you know, and be able to make judgments, be able to make decisions, be able to say, this is how I ought to live in light of what Jesus has taught. And I need God's help to do that. It's not never judge, but don't judge hastily. Our judgments and choices must be by God's guidance and with, all, with that element of mercy and humility always present. 
And I think that, that's, what put, that's what enables us to, as a church, continue to function in that way, being able to say, you know, because, like, Jesus never says, like, hey, never call out sin. Like, sin does need to be dealt with. The speck in the other person's eye is still a little splinter, you know, hurting them, you know, in, in, to, once again, I, I don't know. I, I'm bad with metaphors. So I always take them a little too far. So I, I hope that's not, I hope I'm not doing that today. But, like, that speck is still a bad thing. The speck should not be in the person's eye. Like I said, it's, it's hard. It's harder than the Pharisees' way. The Pharisees' way is just kind of like whatever looks good. But we, gotta be, we, are, we are called to go beyond that. But we also have a good father who knows what we need, and if we're asking him, he's going to give us what we need. In the same way, a good father on earth is not going to just, you know, is not going to give his hungry kid, you know, he's not going to just give his kid, hungry kid a snake. You know, it's like... I just lost my train of thought. That's a, that's wonderful. You know what? That is what I want. That those are all the points I wanted to make. So, as my as we watch my train of thought sail off into the sunset, which you know trains generally shouldn't sail. So I, I don't know if that gives you a picture of my mental my current mental state. Um, I'd like to pray for us because that is I think that's what Jesus is saying we should do is we should pray. So Heavenly Father, thank you that we are able to come here and open up your word today, that we have your word, and that you've given us these things that we can practice and live. Lord, please help us to practice and live these things. You called us to live a hard, you know, to walk a harder path than that of the Pharisees, but it's the path that ends in a right relationship with you. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Would you let us be a people who are so good at showing those and demonstrating those to others? In Jesus' name, amen.